We're going to be in Luke chapter 6 this morning and talk through uh, really kind of this, what's called, it's either a reiteration of the Sermon on the Mount, which is basically Jesus' uh, manifesto that's found in Matthew chapter 5 uh, and all the way through Matthew chapter 7, or it is a different sermon uh, told in a similar sermon that Jesus gave called the Sermon on the Plain, um, which it is often referred to. Uh, but we'll be uh, talking about that. Either way, it is a little bit of Jesus' manifesto. It is his way of communicating, like, this is what the kingdom of God looks like, and this is what it means. So when we talk about uh, getting saved or, or, or something uh, like that, like coming into relationship with Jesus Christ, what really is happening is that we're being brought into the kingdom of God. We're being brought into a new reality of being brought under the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. So Christianity isn't like an option of something that you participate in, but it is a kingdom that you enter into and that you become a part of. And so the question this morning is whether uh, you uh, have entered into that kingdom, whether you, do you feel like you even belong in that kingdom? Do you feel like you're a part of it? Do you feel like, uh, do you sense that Jesus even wants you or, or wants to have you be a part of, of what he's doing? Because I think many of us maybe struggle with the idea of, uh, do, do I belong in this kingdom? Am I really keeping up my end of the bargain? And honestly, this, this passage in, in Matthew chapter 5 uh, through chapter 7 is used oftentimes to basically say, like, this is how we should be living. And if I'm living this way, then Jesus will love me. Or, the, or then I know that he, he has loved me or that he has saved me. But that might be something that's a little bit off because oftentimes what is really going on in Christian circles, what's really going on in preaching these days is this idea of, of teaching you like this is how you can get into God's good graces. This is how you have a good marriage. This is how you have uh, good relationships and things like that. It's about cleaning yourself up, making yourself look a little bit better, and then God is going to be receptive of you because you've taken on all of these characteristics. But the truth is, is what that makes us into is it makes us into a Pharisee. We come to God and say, look, look at all the things that I've done for you. Look at all the ways that I've uh, kind of changed my life, and so I should be acceptable to you. And so we're, we're kind of outrunning this idea of this inner Pharisee that we have in our own heads. We have this inner Pharisee, this person who's very legalistic and, and says, aha, gotcha, you didn't do this and you didn't do that. And so this morning, as, as we're kind of reading through this passage, I want you to kind of pay attention to maybe that inner Pharisee that you might have in your life. That thought process in your mind that says, hey, you're not doing it. You haven't done enough. You haven't cleaned yourself up enough. But I'd also want to encourage you to pay attention to that voice of that inner Pharisee that says, I have done enough. See, some of us are self-condemners and some of us are self-promoters. See, the, those of us who are self-promoters here this morning are people who believe that we have accomplished the will of God We've accomplished the will of God, and therefore, why wouldn't I be acceptable to him? Why wouldn't I be somebody who God wants? Why wouldn't I be involved in his kingdom if all of these things are true of me? And the reality is, is that we have a great misunderstanding of who Jesus is, and we're trying to outpace or outrun this inner voice that's going on, either of condemnation or self-promotion, and it leads us into bad places that don't lead us closer to Jesus. And so this last week, what I was, I was talking to you about was who this Jesus guy is. I think something that really struck me, I mean, many of you made comments about it. I was a little weepy here on stage. I promise I'm not going to uh, weep on you today. That's probably a complete lie, but we'll see. But this idea of this, this Jesus person, who goes after the people who have incapacity, who don't have what it takes, who can't seem to get it right, who have a, a withered hand, and they've been overcompensating and overcompensating and overcompensating. 
And so what we talked about is we talked about how Jesus sees this person, the man with the withered hand. He sees this man and he sees the trouble that he's in. And he heals him right there on the spot. He tells him to do something that he isn't able to do on his own. And likewise this week, what I want you to see is I want you to see this Jesus who's not giving you a list of rules. He's not giving you a how-to of how to get in. He's giving you a, a, a list of love. He's giving you a list of the unqualifications, the disqualifications, if you will, that all of those have that enter into the kingdom of God. Let's take a look at it together. Uh, chapter 6, we'll, be, we'll pick it up in verse 12 here in just a second. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Just a, a side note here. Jesus is God in the flesh, and he prays all night. It's something like eight or ten hours that it sounds like he prayed. For some reason, Jesus felt like he really needed to be in step with his Father. And I just wonder, how much do we feel like we need to be in step with our Father? How much do we need to hear from him? But here's Jesus, he's praying all night, and when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. Let me just briefly say this, and that is that the, here's all of these people that have started to follow him. If you remember, uh, we, we've seen the call of a, a couple of uh, different uh, disciples, such as Peter and then Levi, who is also Matthew. And we've seen Jesus just call these guys out of like just this, this crazy circumstance. Like, I was fishing one moment, and then the next moment, I'm following this guy named Jesus. And they're, and they're disciples. And it's, it's not just that they are uh, that they're a student of Jesus, but that they are people who are trying to live the way that Jesus lived. It's not just that they're taking in information, but they're watching his way of life. And so Jesus calls these guys to himself out of all of these other disciples, and he calls them apostles. And apostles are people who are there to preach and, and to heal. It says that in, in uh uh, the book of Mark, it says right after this, I think I have it written down here, but I'm not going to go there right now. Apostles are these, is a special calling that only comes from Jesus. We don't have apostles today. We have people that have a gifting that's like apostle, uh, like an apostolic gifting, but we are not apostles. So like for somebody who's going to plant a church, we'd say we'd want somebody who has an apostolic gifting, and the reason why that is is because they start a new work. They start something new. But I am not an apostle, and no one else is an apostle. So just for uh, future reference, if you're listening to a, a preacher somewhere, somehow, and you're hearing them talk about how they may be an apostle or you could become an apostle, um, at, at one point I think I read that there's a... Uh, a website that you can go to, give a couple of references to, and they will make you an apostle or something like that, which is absolutely absurd. And so Jesus is the one who calls apostles. And he calls Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, when you look at that list of names, what do you think? You think like, ah, oh, I mean, I've, I've, I've kind of heard of these guys, like some of them. Like, I mean, did, did anybody know that there was a guy named Bartholomew uh, who was a, uh, a, an apostle? I mean, has anybody really heard a whole lot about him? I don't think so. I mean, it just there's very few instances where you hear about Philip or, uh, you know, and, the, and uh, Simon the Zealot. And, you know, people like that. And then you've got Judas, the son of James. 
and then also Judas Iscariot. So there's two Judases in there. The other Judas, I, you know, I, I don't know. What did he do? Who knows? But I think that's kind of the point, that Jesus goes to the Father in prayer, and he sits there all night, and he prays, and he prays, and he prays, and he prays. And I don't know what his choices were. I don't know who the, the particular people were that he could have chosen from, but there's different people that could have been in that group that could have been like, man, this guy has experience. This guy has this. This guy has that. This guy's going to do amazing things for the kingdom of God. This guy's going to do this. This guy's going to do that. I mean, Jesus could have looked at all of those external factors, but by and large, when you look at the names of these people, when you look at the names of these apostles that Jesus chose out of his disciples, these are really just nobodies. It's just a bunch of, of nobodies. It's, it's, you know, it's like a football team that has this no-name offense or no-name defense. Like, no one really stood out, but somehow they play together, and it's like, it's amazing. I know I just made a football reference, and that's, that that's weird for me, but uh, I got into football this last year. What can I say? But there's this thing that, like, Jesus calls these people who are just ordinary people. They're like guys off the construction site. They're guys off the boat docks. They're guys that are just, I don't know, one of them's a tax collector. He's probably really well off. Others are probably kind of poor. But Jesus comes and he calls like ordinary people to do something extraordinary. And Jesus, uh, in, the, in the power of the Holy Spirit, is praying to God his Father, and he's praying and he's asking, who, is, who are the right guys for this? And he lands on these dudes, this list of dudes. And so the point is this. Is that I don't know what you're thinking about how God can use you, but God is always using people that don't feel like they have anything to offer. God is always using people that feel like they have nothing to give. Do you feel like a nothing? Do you feel like somebody who has, has nothing this morning? God is always using people who are <clears throat> like this. And it says in verse 17, and he came down with them and stood on a level place. <clears throat> I think that's literally on a plane, on a, a flat piece of ground. With a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. And so here's Jesus he comes down to a, a flat place. Uh, it may be a flat place on a mountain, and that's why he, this may be Sermon on the Mount, or maybe a completely different place. Now he's, he's on this plain, on this field, and so he's preaching to these guys. He's about to preach to these guys, and there's like a massive group of people, a massive group, crowd of his disciples. And what we, what we have to see here is that we're not talking about just a, a bunch of people who have been in church all their life, who have their stuff cleaned up, who have all the boxes checked, who have good salaries, who whatever. These are people who have serious needs. That's his disciples. And then it says, and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he and healed them all. So here's Jesus, and he's about to start speaking, and there are all of these people from all over the place. There are all of these people who have traveled far and wide. It is a very momentous occasion. It's a very momentous occasion because it's like this thing has come to a head. The, the Pharisees, the religious people, the church people hate him. They want to kill him. They, they're, they're conspiring to kill him. And Jesus goes out and he has this open air, you know, whatever it is, this, this sermon, this gathering. And people are coming from all over and they're just like, this guy has power. This guy has what it takes. This guy can heal me. And so they come to him and they seek a touch from him. And it says that when they touched him, like they were healed. 
and they were healed. And so they're sitting here, and they're waiting. What's this guy going to say? What's this guy going to talk about? What's he going to communicate to us, and what is he like? How is he going to tell us what he's going to tell us? I mean, how am I going to feel about it? How am I going to experience it? And it says this, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Just stop right there for a second and just, and just understand this, that these people who are sitting there and listening to this religious leader, this rabbi, who they've all been following or just came from a long ways to hear, they're sitting here and, they're, and, they're, and they're, they're thinking to themselves possibly, what does it mean to be a religious person? Well, it's that my stuff is cleaned up and my life is, is, is pretty well put together. But Jesus starts out his sermon by saying, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. He says, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Okay. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets." Okay, that's kind of a different sermon. I mean, that, that was, that was kind of weird. What's he mean? Well, he goes on a little bit, and he says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And we'll stop there. What is, what is Jesus talking about here? What's he communicating? Well, this list of the blessed are you who are poor, this list, each one of these words starts out with blessed. And the word in Latin is beati. And so this list of kind of blessings has been called, from the Latin, the beatitudes. It is not the be-attitudes. Be this, this should be your attitude, whatever that, whatever that is. That's not what that means. And sometimes we can look at it and we can say, you know what, this has got to be my attitude, because that's what the beatitudes say, but that's not what this, is, what this means. Jesus is saying Happy are you who are poor. Now, I don't know if you've experienced anybody who's in poverty or whether you grew up in poverty, whether you are poor today, whether you're having a hard time making rent or feeding yourself or paying your house payment or whatever it is. But it's humiliating. It's humiliating to be poor. It's humiliating to grow up in that. Some of us uh, remember that from the economic downturn uh, a few years ago, where some of us lost our jobs, or maybe you lost a house, or something like that. But there's this immediate sense of poverty. And Jesus says, happy are you who are poor. But then he has a contrasting statement at the end, separate statements, which we'll consider together, where he says, woe to you who are rich. And what does he mean by that? What, it, what he means by that is this. How sad for you who are rich. So happy are you who are poor. And then how sad for you who are rich. Now the first thing that you have to see about this is you have to kind of see and understand that many people would look at this and they'd say, you know what, I've got to get to poverty if I want to be with God. Sometimes people hold ridiculous standards, even for pastors, and they say, well, if you're going to be a pastor, then you should be poor because of the Beatitudes, and so therefore, you should be completely poor. Now, I, I don't think 
pastors should be taking advantage of, of anybody financially, but there's no statement that says that we have to be poor necessarily, and there's no statement that you have to be poor in the monetary sense, in the financial sense. But what this is saying, it is not saying that you must be poor in order to get into the kingdom of God. In fact, the book of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, it kind of illuminates a little bit and says, and Matthew has this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the poor in spirit. Matthew kind of expounds on that a little bit. In fact, I think he's copying Jesus' words down. And so he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So there's something else there. It's not the poor financially, but he's talking about the poor spiritually. Now, what is Jesus saying? What is Jesus inviting you to? Jesus is inviting you into something that is different than what our world is selling you. Our world is selling you, uh, according to uh, Leon Morris, he says, an attitude of self-sufficiency which is fatal to spiritual growth. An attitude of self-sufficiency that says, I have all that I want. I have all that I need. I don't need anything from God. I can live life on my own. And some of you, in fact, I hope that all of you have recognized your spiritual poverty in the midst of your financial wealth. Your spiritual poverty is shown in the way that your life goes down. It's in the moments of your relationships. It's in, it's in the way that you live on a regular basis. Your spiritual poverty is shown. And why do we have this? Well, we have this because we think that we are rich. And what Jesus clearly says in verse 24 is he says, Woe to you who are rich. How sad for you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. Now what's true about people who are rich is this. We have all our needs cared for. We have, we have everything we need. The rich are the people who have the wherewithal to be able to make money. I, I consider myself to be an entrepreneurial person. I started a business when I was a kid that was a sort of a miserable failure. Ended up in a lot of tax debt and paid that off for years into my marriage. But I consider myself somewhat entrepreneurial and then got to start a church with other people. But this is a spirit that many of us can have. We have the spirit of, I can make this happen. I can do this. If, if I run out, I can always make more. If I, if I, if I want that, that car, if I want that house, I can go after it. Every graduation sermon, ceremony, speaker, says this. Says, you can have the world. You can go after the world. Grab it by the tail. Get what you want. If you want anything bad enough, you can have it. Jesus says, how sad for you that believe that crap. How sad for you. I mean, I just want one person to be honest on the graduation stage at some point and just say, how sad for you when you believe that if you leave this place, that you can get the world by the tail, you can have all that you want. Jesus would stand up front and he would say, it's a lie. It has made you spiritually poor. And Jesus is saying this. He's saying to the people that come to the realization that my life is broken. My, my world is broken. My, the, the things in my life are not coming together the way that I thought that they would. I thought I was in control. I thought I could make more money. I thought I could whatever it is. And Jesus says, I am welcoming those people who have experienced this poverty. I am welcoming these people who see themselves in this way. But before, and I, I wanna do this as I go, but before you come to a point where you say, you know what, I've just gotta see myself uh, as, as, 
in the right light, and then I can get into the kingdom of God. See, the problem with that is that it's still dependent on you. If you say, okay, I just need to be spiritually poor. I just need to be somebody who doesn't have it all together. And so if I can just do that, then everything will be just fine. But see, that's just another way of saying, I'm going to save myself. I'm going to save my marriage. I'm going to save my relationships. I'm going to save my family. I'm going, I'm going to save this thing because I'm going to see myself as spiritually poor and then therefore I can make this happen. But that is not the way of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom is this, is to enter into the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Consider 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, where it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And what's 2 Corinthians chapter 8 telling us? It's saying this, it's saying that you have a spiritual poverty that you don't even know about, you don't even see, you don't even understand, you can't comprehend, and Jesus is the one who comes into the world who is spiritually rich, but he causes himself, he submits to the Father, he humbles himself and becomes obedient to death on the cross. He makes himself poor. How do you get into the kingdom of God? Is it by being literally poor? No, we've already stated that. Is it by saying, just trying to say false things about yourself? Oh, you know, I am... I am poor. I got to act more poor. I got to. No, it's not. It's by specific reliance on Jesus Christ to come to him and to say, the reality is, is that I think that I'm rich. I think that I have my stuff together. I think that I'm, that I have all that I need. And yet I need Jesus. I need him to be my spiritual poverty for me. I need him to do that. It always makes me think of Revelation chapter 3, verse 15. This is a letter to a church that's gone off track. And Jesus says to this church, he says, I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. You don't like me, you don't hate me. He says, would that you were either cold or hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth, which is not a good place to be with Jesus. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. He goes on to say, I counsel you to buy from me the things that you need, I want you to come and buy from me the things that you need in order to get over this wealth that you think that you have. Now, men and women, we sit here as Americans in Salem, Oregon, and most of us do not consider ourselves to be rich. But I will tell you this, that we're in great economic times. Most of us have work if we want it. Most of us are doing well. Most of us, as our church has grown up, and as we have become a church that is not just of college students, but as people who are beginning to get careers and who, have, who finally have money, uh, somebody uh, attractive has decided that they want to spend time with us, you know, th those kinds of things. Life is kind of coming together for us. And men and women, here's what happens is that we have gone from a place of, uh, of seeing that we need Jesus to a place of just further and further feeling like we have it all together, like we are rich. And Jesus says, this is kind of what happens. Woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Have you received your consolation, or is Jesus your consolation. He says in verse 21, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. He says in verse 25, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Matthew has 
Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means, it means this. It's this idea of this, this longing. It's a longing that is inside of your life, a part of your heart, a part of your soul that is hungering and thirsting for righteousness. This is the person who looks at, them, at, at their, their self. They look at their life and they just go, there are so many things that are jacked up in my heart and I cannot get it together. There are so many things. Now look at verse 21. I, this is maybe too nuanced, but he says, blessed are you who are hungry now. It's not that they have a hunger and they get filled and they have a hunger and that they, that they get filled. But Jesus is talking to people who are sitting there and they're just going, I'm just longing for things to be different in my life. I'm longing for me to feel like I can come to God, but I don't feel like I can come to God because I've, I have a hunger in me that is not fulfilled. And that hunger as Jesus states in, in Matthew, is that it is a hunger for righteousness. It is a hunger for things that are right. You want to see it in yourself, and you think to yourself, after those moments of pleasure, and you think to yourself after that harsh conversation, and you think to yourself after that devastating relationship, and you think to yourself after whatever it is that you just go, I have messed up so poorly. Don't you see what that is? It's a hunger for righteousness. When you sit in your bed at night and you sit there and you hear those accusations against you, like I should not have done that. I should not have done this. I should not have been a part of that. I have messed up my life. Jesus says that the people who are in the kingdom of God are people who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness and that they will be satisfied. But that satisfaction will not come from their abilities to make their life right. You can read that and you can say, I've got a hunger and thirst after righteousness. I need to want what is good. I need to do it. I need to do it. I need to do it. And you can try to white knuckle your, your way through that, but that will not get you. It says that Jesus will be the one who satisfies you. I don't know where you are at, where you have been over your Christian life, if you even feel like you have a, a, a Christian life. But I remember as a young man, when I just... I just didn't feel like I could get it together. Dude, I had so many problems. I mean, you name it. I just, I was such a screw-up. I mean, I, I, I don't really want to recount all of my sins to you right now. But you can just imagine. Like, just, just sin after sin after sin. And I remember uh, I would take my, my truck and I'd drive out to uh, Ankeny Hill, which is a great spot to meet the Lord or make out with your to-be wife. Uh, sorry, babe. And it's a very calm place. Ankeny Hill is a, it's a bird refuge place. Not a lot of bird watching in the middle of the night, but, but, there is, but there's many times that I spent time out there just hungering, hungering for God. Hungering, just going, I don't feel like I measure up to this. And the truth is, is that I did not measure up. I, I could not stand with this measuring stick. The measuring stick of everyone else that I saw in the church that was uh, the same age, uh, similar place in life kind of a deal. And here I am, just broken all of the time. 
and just feeling like I could never get to God. I, I almost do not have words for, for how I felt in those moments, just feeling like I cannot, I cannot get from here to there. And just my heart is just like, it's hurting. And, I, and I'm just, I'm hungering for something. And what I'm hungering for is this. I mean, just to put it in plain language, God, I just want to stop sinning. I just want to do what's right because then I'll be acceptable to you. I'll be acceptable to people in the church. Jesus turns that on his head and he says, blessed are you who are hungry, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you shall be satisfied. And the satisfaction for me today does not come in the fact that I've been perfected in some way, because I have not been perfected yet. My satisfaction comes in Jesus Christ alone. You cannot measure up to this standard. You can't hunger and thirst for righteousness enough. It has to be Jesus who is the one who will satisfy you. He satisfies you by taking your sin and giving you his righteousness, by implanting in you a desire for righteousness. It comes from him. And then you can say with Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? When Jesus does something in you, you can honestly say that to God, and you can say, I am longing for you, and why would I be longing for him? Because I am not enough. I don't have what it takes. I remember through this period of my life reading Jeremiah 29, 13, God says to his people, Israel, he says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And I was longing for that and I was saying, Lord God, what part of my heart is not seeking after you? What part of my heart is not delighting in you? What part of me doesn't really want you? And I just have to say that I don't think that those desires came from me. I think they came from God. Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. It's this idea of when you delight yourself in God, he gives you new desires for your heart. Do you desire righteousness? Do you desire to be right with God? Do you desire to have a relationship with him? That can only come from God. When we delight ourselves in him and we're seeking after him, he answers that prayer. He's the one who's putting these desires in us to even want him. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, I don't even know that I want God, I just want the pain to stop. I don't even know that I want God, I just don't want to be so spiritually poor anymore. It is through this poverty, it is through this hunger, this lack of righteousness, that Jesus says, come one and come all. Jesus responds to you and he says, I see that you're poor. I see that you're weak. I see that you're hungry and all can come to me. Everyone can come to me. Jesus is opening the door as wide as ever. He says, if, if anyone th thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Jesus says, that thirst that you have in your life, that insatiable desire for something to fill you that cannot fill you can only be fulfilled with Jesus. You may say, oh yeah, it's just a new business or it's just a new job or it's just a new relationship or it's just more sex or it's just that. All of those desires are all pointing to an unfulfilled need in Jesus Christ. He is the only one who satisfies. Go on to the next one. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. The woe aspect of that is still verse 25. It says, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Now what does this mean? It means that you might be content with the status quo. 
You're content with the way that things are if you are laughing now. You have a carefree attitude that says, I have all that I need. I'm laughing now. It's, it's just kind of like not really taking anything too seriously. It's not really worrying about anything. But the truth is, is that Jesus says, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Now what is that, what is that talking about? Matthew says, blessed are you who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What would you be mourning? You could be mourning the rejection that you got from a spouse that just picked up and left you. You're mourning the devastation of your childhood home or your lack of a childhood home. You're weeping because you just experienced depression or anxiety, which are very common today. You're, you're weeping because you lost a job or you lost your income or you lost your, your life savings. You're weeping because you destroyed a marriage. You're weeping because you destroyed opportunities. You're weeping because you destroyed relationships. You're weeping because you lost a house. It may be that you're, you're weeping because you look at the world and you look at the, the, the sin and the devastation. And you weep over that. You weep over the, the things of this world and you just go, how can this be happening? How can this be taking place? What it, where is God in these moments? Why is he allowing these things to happen to me or to anybody else? You're weeping. You're weeping because things are not the way that they should be. And Jesus says, you will be comforted. You will be comforted. And it's like there's this promise in there that says that surrender to Jesus looks like this. That if you make that relationship, if you make the thing that you lost, if you, if you make the, the depression, if you make uh, the, the job, if you make the relationship, if you make the marriage your everything and you say, that's all that matters to me, you're only weeping for, for that thing. Jesus says, I can not only take that from you, not only can I take the pain and the anguish and all of that from you and bring you to a better place than you've ever been, but I can bring you into the kingdom of God itself. You can live in and under the rule and the reign of this benevolent king who loves those who are poor and who are weary and who don't have their stuff together and who are weeping. And he says, I'm going to bring you to a place of laughter. I'm going to bring you to a place of laughter. Verse 22 says, blessed are those, uh, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And what's it, what's it saying there? It's saying that there are people, there are these prophets in the Old Testament, and they would bring the truth of the word of God to bear on the people of Israel. And they'd say, we must no longer worship and serve these, these false gods. And then Israel would rise up and kill that prophet and say, forget you, we're doing our thing. It says in the woe here in verse 26, woe to you when all people speak well of you, 
for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now, I think this one is particularly helpful today. And it's helpful because of this. There are so many reasons that we may not want to speak the gospel today because of the way that it is received. When you tell people, hey, you cannot get to God on your own. You're, you are spiritually uh, uh, inept. You're unable to reach God. You can't do enough good. You're so sinful that you deserve death. And people do not want to hear that. People do not want to know that. They don't want to hear about this wrathful God that will send you for eternity to a place called hell. People don't want to hear that. They don't want to know that. There are people who call themselves Christians that say, well, enough with that kind of stuff. Enough with this stuff that, that's talking about sin and hell and damnation and those kinds of things. And then they begin to bring in other ideologies of sexual ethics or gender-bending type uh, situations or whatever it is. It's just morality continues to slip, slip and slip and slip. And Jesus says, Woe to you when all speak, people speak well of you. What's often heard in, in culture, what I've, I've heard this many times on the news, where, where uh, the, the commentator will say that people are close to being on the wrong side of history. Meaning that our viewpoint today about sexual ethics and about marriage and about all of those things will be on the wrong side of history. Well, the truth is, is that we're actually on the right side of history because that's the way that it's been for ages and ages and ages. But it, what's also true is this, is that I don't care what our culture says. I don't care what they believe. My, the, the word that I'm listening to is the word of Jesus Christ. And the word of Jesus Christ says that you should be scared. How sad for you when everyone is speaking well of you. Now what this doesn't mean is this does not mean that when people hate you that it's always because of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. Sometimes Christians are just stinking morons. Sometimes we are people who are so lost. We are people who are so inept. We are people who cannot seem to get our stuff together. We're obnoxious. We rip people off. We're, we're sinners. We're people who uh, go into our workplace and uh, we're lazy. And then when we get fired, we say, well, it's because I was a Christian. That's why they let me go. No, we fired you because you would not work. We fired you because you would not do your job or something like that. What this is saying is he's saying, you are happy when people hate you and when they exclude you and they revile you and spurn your name on account of the Son of Man, which is Jesus. And Jesus says that instead of coming to a point where you say, you know what, I just hate our culture. I'm just going to communicate to people how much I hate our culture and how much we're in this culture war and so forth. Instead of doing that, Jesus says, rejoice in that day. Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. And how does that happen? It doesn't happen because you just tried to become someone that's hated. You can do that and you'll be hated for the wrong reasons. It happens when you are living the life that Jesus implants in you. It happens when you become somebody who says, I see that Jesus receives me. I see that Jesus has satisfied my hunger and thirst for righteousness. I see what Jesus has done for me, how he went to the cross for me. And so I want to serve other people in this way. We took kind of an impromptu or informal survey of our members, and we say, what is the, the number one thing that you say that you need help with? And the number one thing was speaking the gospel. We do, uh, right over here it says, when, it's, when we talk about living outward, one of those things is we speak the gospel. And one of the reasons why we can't seem to speak the gospel is because we don't know the gospel. We haven't experienced the gospel. We're still trying to save ourselves. We're still listening to an inner Pharisee that is telling us, you haven't done enough, or you have done enough, or what, whatever it is. 
And as a result, we don't experience the truth of the gospel. So how do you experience the truth of the gospel? You drop the act. You drop the act. And what is the act? The act is saying that I, I've got my stuff together. The act is saying that you're not completely and totally messed up and that you just need just a little bit of Jesus. You just need a little bit of morality. But that, my friend, puts you in a place of desperation. You are not, you cannot get to Jesus that way. The way we get to Jesus is through repentance and faith. Repentance is to say the same thing that Jesus says about your sin. Repentance is acknowledging the reality that I am so broken that I, I don't know which end is up and I've screwed this thing up. I am spiritually poor. And the beauty of it is this, is that Jesus accepts you as you are. Jesus receives you as you are. And so this morning, the gates have been thrown open. As Jesus begins his Sermon on the Plain or his Sermon on the Mount, and he says, I want you to come to me. If you feel poor, if you feel hungry, if you feel like you don't have enough, if you feel like you've been hated for all the wrong reasons, if you feel like uh, you don't measure up, you're right. But I do, and that's why Jesus went to the cross for you. Can I pray for us? Lord God, this morning, we want to thank you that your doors are open to the wicked, to the abusers, to the adulterers, to the drug addicts, to the alcoholic, to the person who struggles with rage, to the gossip. Your doors are open to the glutton. Your doors are open to the prideful. to the sinful, to the depressed, to those who are weeping, for those who are mourning, for those that don't look like everybody else, for those that don't even, have the, don't even know the first thing about Christianity, your doors are open. Lord, may we be happy in you because you provide this. It's in your name we pray. Amen.